Good morning, everyone. We are at that point in our study of the book of Revelation uh, where it's probably time to do a little bit review and just uh, make sure that you are all tracking with me. Um, would you just send this uh, down to Dave real quick? I think it would be helpful for him to have this. The I'm going to say this for about the 90th time. The narrative of the book of Revelation, once you get past chapter 5, is essentially the judgment. Seal, followed by trumpet, followed by bowl. Uh, that is how I believe we should understand the basic narrative of the book of Revelation. And then the way this chart helps us to see how all the parts are connected, uh, they're both below and above <clears throat> Excuse me, the basic line, are a series of parentheses, or what in this class we call bunny trails, but a series of parentheses where John is explaining something that is, um, if I say tangential, do you know what I mean? Not central, but still very a very important part of what's going on. And so what I want to do up here uh, in the mess that I've written up here is just review a couple of things because we're at that point um, where it's really important to get the big picture again before we finish the details. So let's just review the big picture if we can. And there's a lot I've written up here. I violate every major premise of a good visual. Don't have too much <laughs> material on it. I have way too much material on it, but I hope it'll be helpful. Here's the, here's the, here's the timeline, the, you know, the horizontal line. And remember, we learned this from Daniel, and we learned this from, Revela uh, from uh, Second Thessalonians, and we learned this from Book of Revelation. This is seven years, okay? And we saw in the book of Daniel and in the Lord Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 24 that watch for a marker in this seven-year period. It's in the middle when the abominable one, what Revelation calls the beast, what First John calls Antichrist, etc., etc., sets up in the temple, on Temple Mount, Jerusalem, sets up altar to be worshipped. So Jesus says, watch for that. Pay attention to that. So I just mark this. The midpoint is the worship of the beast is established. All right, now, let's, so that's kind of how you divide the timeline. You've got to think the timeline in that way. I hope that makes sense. There are two. Above the timeline, I'm focusing on judgment. Below the timeline, I'm, I'm focusing on the really large issues that are explained to us uh, in those parentheses or those little bunny trails we call it. First of all, in the first half of this seven-year period, the beast, Antichrist, the little horn, all those names he has through the Bible, is beginning to build and consolidate his empire. I don't know how else to put it. I'm not using necessarily biblical language, but I'm using, in a summary fashion, what the scriptures explain to us. Now, in that period of time, God is beginning his judgment. And those... Uh, judgments are summarized in the seven seal judgment and the seven trumpet judgment. Remember that? Now, some commentators would put the trumpet judgments in the second hand. I just don't know how that's possible, but anyway, that's you're not relevant for what we're doing. This is how I see it, and I think it, I can defend it that way. And so, as the beast is building and consolidating his world empire, God's judgments are beginning on earth. Okay. Who then are the witnesses for God who are still representing him 
because the beast is that antichrist, the substitute Christ. Well, there are two things we learn. One, from Revelation 7, the witness 144,000. Two, from chapter 11, the witness of the two witnesses. Unnamed, but there's two witnesses who witness, who do their work for three and a half years, then Antichrist kills them. They lay in, in open, the open streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, and then God takes them back to heaven. That's extraordinary power, but the, the clear witness that God has, these are his two primary witnesses, 144,002. All right, I mentioned that the midpoint, both the book of Daniel and Jesus and his comments in Matthew 24, help us to understand this is the midpoint. Look for that. That's a key marker. We already talked about that. Now, the second half, the second three and a half years, is a little more difficult to be precise about all that's going on. But we know two things. Number one, we do know that the seven bowl judgments, which we are now going to study those, that's chapter 16, the seven bowl judgments occur without question in the second half. The other thing that is really important is, and this is what we're going to see in chapter 17, so this is chapter 16, and this is chapter 17 and 18. The beasts Babylon, and that's the term that you'll see used. We haven't really dealt with that yet. I want to talk about that in just a little bit. So we use the term that Revelation 17 and 18 uses, the beast Babylon, which is his religious, political, and economic empire, begins to unravel. It begins to come apart. Again, I'm using language that just summarizes what we read in those two chapters. And the, the, the collapse of his world rule and the consolidated coalitions and everything that he apparently puts together begins to unravel. And all of the world powers begin to invade the Middle East, which is the center of his power base, which leads to the campaign of Armageddon and the actual literal battle of Armageddon in the Jezreel Valley, which culminates in the return of Christ. And so that's Revelation 19. So this is 16. This is 17 and 18, which culminates in this, and then the return of Christ. That's why we're almost at the end. Now, this is roughly a three and a half, we think all of this is happening in this three and a half year period. But what was consolidated and built here begins to come apart here, which produces the world crisis of international collapse of almost everything and uh, the, the military campaign against Antichrist which is what the Battle of Armageddon is all about. Now, that's just that's the big picture. We're at the point in our study where I thought it would be good to just review this one more time. Was that helpful? Are you, you with me? Any questions? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you can kind of just keep this, you're, you're never going to remember all these details. I mean, you have the notes that I wrote and everything, but it's just if you can kind of keep this basic framework, the basic narrative of Revelation of those series of judgments. See, judgment, uh, sealed trumpet, and uh, bold judgments. That helps you to sort through all the other things that are going on about um, the, uh, the, not only the judgments, but what the Antichrist, that substitute Christ, is all about. Okay? Any questions? Yeah. Uh, in the, the, at the end of chapter 14, the, the, the harvest, if you will, of the uh, well, I, I guess the the harvest that's discussed in then chapter fourteen, and then the wine press judgment. Right, right. Uh, those three angels introduced. Yeah, yes. So a couple of questions. Number one, who 
who is being harvested, <coughs> what what parties or people, and then where is where is the beast or the antichrist at that time? And is he trying to stop that, or is he just standing by watching, or is he what is he doing? Great question. Remember that chapter fourteen is. Um, you divide it into two parts, yeah. two groups of angels. Right. One, three. The third, first group is essentially reminding us that God's witness still is there, that people can still respond and so on. The second uh, group of three angels introduces the, the judgment. Now, almost everyone understands, that's how I look at it, Joel, understands that these uh, second three uh, group of three angels are introducing, explaining, and summarizing the bowl judgments. And so it's and it's it's using day of the Lord language out of the Old Testament. Right. The, the that God's judgment is like a wine press judgment. It's I mean it's it's making that analogy for you and me. That's hard because we don't think that way. We might think of you know judgments where you're you're placed under tons and tons of concrete and smashed. You know maybe but it's hard for us to. But in this. In the ancient world, wine press totally because everything is squeezed out of it. It's, it's absolutely devastating. There's nothing left. And so they're introducing the thoroughness of God's judgment on planet Earth at the end, which is what the bold judgments are. And it is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is affecting this judgment. This is the wrath of the Lamb, and it is his angels that are helping to carry this out. And the means and characteristics of that judgment are what the, the bold judgments. So who is being judged? Those who have rejected the message of the gospel. Those who are alive uh, at, at the time that, that these events are occurring. I think it's a, the last three and a half years, block of time. And I mean, it's pretty, it's horrible. But as the first three angels reminded us, each time God does this, he gives people an opportunity to repent. Okay. So, I mean, you're, who? It's all the unrighteous on earth at that time. And Antichrist is doing everything he can, Joel, to, to explain this, not as something from God, but these are the enemies of my empire. Come to me and I will solve these issues. I will solve these problems. That's the deception of the Antichrist. It's a, it's a huge, and, and we just don't know that. It, to me, it's, it's going to be a huge, how is he going to explain all this? Mm-hmm. If I am God, manifest God, which is, you know, I am the, the supreme one, how is he going to explain all these things that are happening? That would be interesting. Woody, why, don't, why are you sitting in the middle now, not at the end? Oh, I know. I'm, I know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. It's so hard. For five, so five years, you didn't have a word. Five years you didn't have an idea of what I was saying. Now you're in tune. <laughs> Which means now you can pass on. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which means now you can pass on my quizzes. <laughs> what I want to know is on your blackboard chart there, at what point do many people worship the beast? Is it in that second three and a half years? Yeah. Or is it where? Yeah, it, it, let's. let's can I rephrase your question? Yes. Where do we see, or where will we expect to see the insistence and, in, in effect, the mandating that the world worship the beast? It's right here. That's why Jesus said, this is the marker. Pay attention. 
When you see, he uses the language of Daniel chapter 9, when you see the abominable one set up worship of himself in the temple mount, pay attention. That's a key marker. And we learned in Revelation chapter 13, uh, about two weeks ago, I think it was, we learned that you have the beast antichrist and you have the false prophet who is the head of this religious order that is insisting the world worship him. And you remember, he is the one who cultivates everyone that worships him gets a mark. And if you don't have the mark, 666, you cannot engage in commerce, you can't buy, you can't sell. So it will cost if you do not bow down and worship uh, the beast. So the answer to your question, this is where it really begins worldwide, and it pretty much permeates the end of it. But see, as you get further and further, or maybe a better way of saying it, as you get closer and closer to the return of Christ, that worldwide worship is also falling apart. I mean, because his empire and everything that he put together is beginning to unravel, which is why we're going to read it today in one of the bold judgments. The Euphrates River dries up, and the great empires from the east can come across Asia into the Middle East, which is what will culminate in the Battle of Armageddon. So really, at this point, he's kind of like at his peak. That's right. This is the peak. Right here is the peak of his rule. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. That's a great question, to keep that kind of straight. All right? This is amazing, man. You're one of the... There aren't many people that really get this. I'm serious. And I don't mean that. I'm not trying to stroke you and make you feel proud. But that you are, you are persisting with this study and trying to understand this is commendable. Because this is hard. And I'm doing my best to help unravel. So I hope you're with me. Yeah, Fred. If someone takes a 666 sign, and then can they still uh, come to faith? Sure. But if they do, they will pay, probably pay for that with their life. Mm-hmm. But yes, I mean, I don't see anything. I think the way you're asking a question, I don't see anything in the text that says taking the mark of the beast means you could never then trust Christ. You know, but the text does seem to indicate that there are not going to be many people that will do that in terms of the total population. But I, I just can't give numbers. But I don't see anything that prohibits a person from responding. Let's look then at chapter 16, if you're following your notes, it's page 33. But And these are pretty rapid fire, bang, 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 they really are. But what I would like to do is simply, and you know, they're fairly easy to understand in terms of the words, but to try to really comprehend the nature of the devastation they're going to bring is a little more difficult. So... I, I just I'm going to just ask you: Do you just think about, for all for for all practical purposes, how absolutely horrific it's going to be to be on planet Earth at this time? If you believe in a, the rapture of the church before this all starts, praise the Lord, because if He comes to if He raptures us tomorrow, we're not going to be here. So it's just uh, I find comfort in that. But if you don't believe in the pre-trib rapture, then. Can I ask you one? Yeah, oh, please. One, one question. Yeah, it's been please. kind of on my mind. <clears throat> For thousands and thousands of years, man has been in rebellion against God. <clears throat> and yet, God's retribution is now being poured out in this, in against a different generation. 
So, I mean, I'm not asking an equity question, but I am kind of asking an equity question. Because these people who are alive at this, in this seven-year period are going to bear an enormous uh, punishment or endure an enormous punishment. But it's really retribution for rebellion over eons, right? Am I right in that? Or? Um. That's a great question, and it's loaded with all kinds of theological nuance that I'm trying to stay away from. Um, I want to push back on that just a little bit, um, Jim, because the, the Bible speaks of God's final judgment, which Revelation 20 will explain to us as the great white throne, is the is where the retribution, the um, the penalty or the consequences of rejecting God's grace is going to occur, and in in some ways, what is happening on planet Earth at this time is is consistent with things that God has done throughout history, or has God has allowed to occur throughout history, as, as I'll comment here in just a second. The bold judgments of Revelation 16 are very, very comparable and parallel to the ten <coughs> plagues that God leveled on Egypt to force Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. It's, it, as a matter of fact, they're almost identical. So that generation that was in Egypt at the time of the, the exodus from Egypt uh, the Jews experience the same thing a lot of these people will experience. The difference is, if you make a quantitative or or uh, uh, analytical difference, is that was confined to the Nile River Valley. This will be there's no place will it will be immune from this. And in many ways, Jim, too, what God is doing is He is purging the planet of all elements of the rebellion to begin to cleanse it and renew it when his son returns and sets up his kingdom. So he has, it's, there's, there's a lot going on here, and uh, it's, it's, um, I, I, don't, I don't want you to think that this is really the, the finality of God's judgment. It's the great white throne that's the finality, and that's, gonna, that's the most horrible thing you can possibly imagine. When God will forever, forever condemn you to separation from his presence in an eternal place of judgment. And all hope is gone. There will never be an opportunity for you to respond again. I don't think any of us can imagine the horror of that, what that will mean. I mean, and then with that, the, uh, the um, judgment of all final judgment of all human beings who have lived throughout all of human history who have rejected God's grace. The Hitlers, the, the, the Stalins, the Mao Zedongs of this world will be standing before Christ and be judged. Thank you, that's helpful, especially the whole purging concept. Yeah, yeah. That's, that seems to be, I get that from Second Peter chapter 3, that seems to be one of the ways, it's not the only way, but one of the ways the scriptures want us to think about what's going on here as well. In your comments, you sort of separated God from Christ. I think Jesus, didn't you? And that you, you used the word God there as being active as opposed to Christ. Is that, am I reading that correctly? And 
Mm-hmm. But remember, God is one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. Mm-hmm. And you speak uh, correctly. We saw that in chapter 5 of Revelation. You speak correctly of the wrath of the Lamb as well as the wrath of God. And so they're, they're the same, uh, and yet uh, there is that difference of the persons of the Trinity. You know. All right, 30 minutes down at a quarter after. Can we start the text, <laughs> chapter 16? And it's all right because I wanted to spend time just reviewing again to get the big picture, get the forest, get the big thing before we look at the trees now. All right, now, if you're following your notes or you're just looking at your text, these are, these are short, bang, 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 bang judgments. There's not a lot of elucidation here. I heard a loud voice from the temple. Now, that takes you back to the material at the end of chapter 15, so that shouldn't surprise you. Saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of the wrath of God into earth. Now, that takes you back to the last several verses of chapter 15. Is there, you know who these are, you know where they're coming from, now their assignment is given. The first angel went and poured out his bowl into the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore upon the men who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. So you have, it, it's extremely difficult to translate that word. And so you have several different translations translated differently, but, you know, loathsome, malignant, painful, horrible sores. It is almost identically parallel to Exodus chapter 9 in one of the plagues God sends to Egypt to force them to let his people go. Verse 3, and the second angel poured his into the sea, and it became blood like, and notice it's a simile, like, it isn't, but it's like a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. So the world seas become like blood, and all marine life dies. That is very similar to Exodus chapter 7, when God curses the Nile River Valley, and the water in the Nile becomes like blood. Thirdly, in verse 4, And the third angel poured out his bow into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Okay, you have the salt water, verse 5, or the second bowl, verse uh, 4, the the third uh, bowl, the fresh water. Now, you have a very interesting dialogue. It's short, but you have a very interesting dialogue in verse 5, 6, and 7. And I heard the angel of the waters... What waters? The ones that we just read about, who executed the third judgment. Righteous art thou who are and who was, O holy one, because you didst judge these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, and now it's given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God the Almighty, true and righteous are his judgments. Why are those three verses there? Why do you have that short, pithy dialogue? This isn't unjust. This isn't a temper tantrum of the deity. This is God's righteous vindication of the martyrs for the ages. It's all, and this is really harsh, but it summarizes they deserve it. This is God's righteous <coughs> judgment. In, 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 in terms of the whole corpus of God's word, this is what is called, I don't have room here. Well, somebody wrote on this, but I'm still going to use this. 
This is what is called in the Bible talionic justice. This is the principle of justice throughout God's word. And the only thing that tempers God's talionic justice is his grace. But talionic in Latin is lex talionic. But what's the one summary statement you see in old and new that summarizes this? An eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth. It becomes the basis for capital punishment. It becomes the basis for the, the civil laws of ancient Israel and so on. That if you violate God's moral law, if you violate God's civil law, there is an appropriate, in-kind punishment for that. It's, the point is you're accountable. The point is you're a moral agent. And if you reject God's grace is manifested in his moral laws and in his, in, in his ordinances, you're accountable for that. And so all the angels are doing in this mini-dialogue is just reviewing this what is called in the scriptures here, the wrath of God, this isn't a temper tantrum of God. He's having a bad day. This is his righteous, perfect judgment. This is justice. This is earlier than I expected in the second three and a half years. I thought it would be a gradual thing. Up on it's going to get worse. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's going to get a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, it's going to get a lot. It's going to, yeah, yeah. I, I'm like you. I look at this as pretty severe, but it's, uh, it's, it's going to get, it's going to get more and more intense. Yeah. Okay. The fourth one, verse eight, and the fourth angel poured out his bow upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Now, that would be a metaphor, scorchment with fire. And the men who scorched were fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now, because you and I live in a period of time where we understand the greenhouse effect, and greenhouse effect doesn't have anything to do with environmentalism, it's just a reality. That there is such a thing that is the greenhouse effect. It's the methane and all the things that protect us in the atmosphere. So all we can probably say, if you want to try to explain this, is that protective greenhouse is gone. And so now what you have is the intensity of the sun is not filtered through, it's direct. That's, that's pretty horrible. That's pretty horrible to imagine that, where there's nothing filtering the direct sun. And so all, that's all it's telling. It doesn't explain how it occurs. But it's, I think you and I have a little bit of a better, and I'm not talking here about environment. I'm talking about our carbon footprint. I don't, and that's not what I'm talking about. All I'm saying is we understand the science of this much better than they did. And this is written. It's just in some way this is removed, or at least it's reduced. And so that scorching effect of the sun will be uh, important. All right, now verse 10. Uh, yes, uh, Daryl. I have a question about that in verse 9. Yeah. It, it shows that they cursed the name of God. Yes. Who had control over these plagues and they refused to repent and glorify them. Yeah. Um, it's almost like, like their profanity of the day, they don't seem to really know that there is a connection. Uh, they're, they're, just, they're just profaning the name because I don't know why, but they do. But here, it's as if they understand that he's connected with it. And they're actually 
cursing his name because it would seem yes yes it would seem to be uh, the right conclusion to reach they are knowingly and intentionally cursing slandering blaspheming god because he caused this exactly jim i'm sorry i gotta just yeah absolutely this. no it says but they refuse to repent and yep. glorify him which to me says that they might have had the opportunity to, to repent at this point is that correct absolutely Absolutely. And even, and I think it is, is, is appropriate and proper for us to understand that, what, and this is also very true when you go back to the exodus from Egypt, every one of those plagues in ancient Egypt and every one of these judgments in the book of Revelation is an opportunity for people to respond. And, and every and we've seen this over and over and over again. Each time one of those opportunities to respond is given, what happens? They refuse to repent. And that gives you, I think, a little indication of, uh, at least I think it can, of the almost unimaginable hardness of the human heart. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I, I put my faith in Jesus. I, I, I've been rescued from, from my sin and so on. But I look at this. I just think it's unimaginable that your heart is going to be so hard. As Daryl just said, you're going to intentionally and willfully blaspheme God for sending this, and refuse because He's given you a chance. It's not too late. You can still embrace me, and they. Curse him, blaspheme him, and refuse to repent. Repent. But they might have had the mark by then. But in response, that doesn't mean they can't respond. Okay. But to respond means it's going to cost. You probably will be murdered. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. But I mean, it's you, no chance to respond until the until the very end is when there's no chance to. Yeah, well, Woody, I don't. All I can say to you is, if you let's let's speak at the level of individual people, okay, individual people. I don't see anything in this material which would explain to us or cause us to conclude that no matter who you are, where you are, or what the situation is during this time, you still have the opportunity to individually repent, individually put your faith in Christ. God's witnesses are still there. So still we can say, as it is today, you have, if you reject God's grace, you can, you can respond to God's grace until you take the last breath. And, and if you, then if you have refused, then you, you, you are held accountable for that. So all I'm saying to you, Woody, is I, just, I don't see any reason why we can't conclude that, that there still is an opportunity for people to respond. But the broad stroke statements of these, it's not happening. Actually, the solution and balance is, is found in the last part of verse 11, where it says, but they refuse to repent of what they That's right. Yeah, yeah, the hardness. It, it just, it's, to me, it's, it's almost unimaginable. How could you not? <laughs> but it's just the hardness. They, Jeremiah says the, the, the heart of man is desperately wicked. It's the old King James translation. Is, is Satan in, uh, is he active? Absolutely. He is, is his last shot. He is throwing everything he can 
at God. Maybe he's throwing a hard heart into people. Well, yeah, I would. Yeah, I would think so. I, you know, I. Yes, I mean, I would think so. I mean, I I can never explain satisfactorily the dynamics of the human heart. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. All right, let's let's. uh, uh, Where am I? Number ten, verse ten, the fifth bowl. Now there is a shift here now. There's a shift to these judgments. Look at the fifth one. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl upon the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became darkened. And they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Now, this this fifth bowl, this... It's hard to understand the language of this, but that's why I put it this way. What is, what is happening, God is attacking, God is directly assaulting this consolidated, integrated world empire that he's built and it's beginning to unravel. So we learn something from this, this bold judgment that the, the reason it is beginning to unravel is because God is causing it to unravel. And what, as you're going to see in the next two uh, judgments, it, it helps us to understand that this unraveling is what produces Armageddon. This great world campaign where all the powers of the earth come to the Jezreel Valley in, in Israel and, and fight the final battle. And it's going to tell us very, very intentionally later on. They are intentionally and willfully making war on the Lamb. That's amazing because they begin to understand that they are really fighting God. But we're not quite there yet. Then verse 12. Now, again, keep in mind what I did with the big picture here. Everything is beginning to unravel. And the sixth angel poured out, verse 12, poured out his bowl upon the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up, that the way might be prepared for the kings from the east. Now that is, this is a very, very important piece of information. Because earlier in the book of Revelation, and in Daniel chapter 11, I doubt that you remember back that far, but it explains to us, using directions north, south, east, etc., where the different powers are going to come from. And it's always been a challenge. How in the world can you get such a significant number of soldiers from the east into southwest Asia, into Israel? Two barriers. One is the large plateau, Tibet, and so on, which then goes into Nepal and Afghanistan, all that stuff. Well, it's really, it, that's, that's easy to understand today, for you and me at least. China has financed the building of an enormous road. They are taking the old routes of the Silk Route that Marco Polo used and others, and they built a very, very, very modern, well-structured, it, it's very secure uh, road system that is easy for trade. Well, you could easily move an army across that, too. 
But then the other barrier is the Tigris-Euphrates River, the Mesopotamian Valley. I mean, to get an army across, because you can't move an army any other way. You can't bring an army through a desert that's 650 miles wide. You can't move an army across a desert like that. And so the, the thing is to get to the northern part of the Fertile Crescent, which is that very lovely land at the top, the north, and if the Euphrates is dried up, presumably we're to understand supernaturally, dried up, then that explains how the final leg of that great eastern army moves into the Middle East. So it's just telling us that what God is doing in these bold judgments is setting up the, the final dramatic showdown between the Lamb of God and the great dragon. It's the final showdown between Jesus and the serpent. It's the final showdown between the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, and the serpent of old. This is the final showdown. Now, I'm trying to be dramatic, but I'm also trying to be biblical. All of those themes throughout the scriptures, this is the final showdown. Verse 13, and it helps us to understand the supernaturally energized power of this evil. Now, this is figurative language. And and so coming out of the mouth of the dragon, who's that from Revelation 12? That's Satan. And out of the mouth of the beast, Revelation 13, who's that? It's Antichrist. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, who's that? His chief lieutenant who fosters the building of that religious system centered on the worship of him, who dispenses these rules, worship or pay with your life. If you don't have the mark, you're going to die. All right? So as we've talked before several times, this is this false trinity. This is this substitute, deceptive, deceiving trinity Out of the mouth comes three unclean spirits. Now, again, it's a simile, like frogs. And that brings up the memories of the plagues against Egypt. But it's like frogs. They aren't frogs. But all it's saying, and listen to me, (laughs) as if you're not listening to me, the, the energized supernatural power of evil is sourced in this false troika, this fourth false trinity. And then it tells us in verse 14 this final thrust, this final energized focus of all the deceptive things they're going to do. For for they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the the Almighty. So they're fighting back here. Yes. Where where the, the sixth angel... Right up the great river. Yes. And so then re- retaliation it sounds like the this, this spirits that look like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon. Is that, it's like it's, it's two trinities fighting each other. <laughs> it, uh, I'm not sure I, I like that analogy, but uh, it is, it, it, listen. It, what, what this is explaining to us is consciously, intentionally, willfully, Satan is organizing the armies of planet Earth to fight whom? God. That is crystal clear at the end of verse 14. 
This is it's it's they're using the signs of demons, those deceptive things. Jesus warned in Matthew twenty: be careful, be wise. The de- the deception of the end is going to be so amazing that even some of the elect could be deceived. So whatever the nature of this is, it does it doesn't tell specifically, but they are convincing. They're motivating, they're energizing, they're empowering the powers of planet Earth, the kings of the whole world, is the language of verse 14, to gather together to fight God. Now you're sitting there probably, that's ridiculous. Why? They're not going to win. That's been Satan's strategy since Genesis chapter 3. He is challenging God's right to rule this universe. Isaiah 14, verse 12 and 5, I will be like the Most High. I am going to topple God from his throne. And you just think, I, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but that he is, it's his final assault, the final battle. This is, this is what Tolkien had in mind in The Return of the King in volume three of The Lord of the Rings. I'm serious. It's exactly what he had in mind. It's what Lewis had in mind when he wrote his uh, three-volume space trilogy. It's what what Lewis had in mind, Chronicles of Narnia. This is Aslan fighting the final battle. Um, I I don't know if you follow all those, but they're great stories. They're great allegories of what Revelation's all about. And then you have verse 15, and and most of your translations correctly have this as a parenthesis. It's like a reminder. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see a shame. Now that last part, it's it's, it's very clear what he's saying, but who's speaking here? The Lamb. Who said, I will return like a thief in the night? Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Jesus did. So it's a parenthesis, a reminder. Hold it. Don't let this deception work. Remember what I said. I will come back like a thief in the night. Didn't Paul say it to you in First Thessalonians 5? He did, exactly. Mm-hmm. In, in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, that's right. So it's just a reminder. It's, just, it's a reminder of how significant this deceptive work of the evil one's going to be. And Jesus says, now don't forget who I am. I promise I'm going to come back. Don't give in. Stay awake. Be alert. Be prepared. <laughs> don't give up like somebody who's naked and you're shamed. Don't do that. Preparedness. Steadfastness. It's, I mean, that's a reminder. Not for you and me. We're not going to be here. But for those who have confessed loyalty to Jesus during these horrible years. And then in verse 16, we learn the geography of this. Where is this going to be fought? This gathering of the armies of the world to do battle with with God. They gathered together in a place in Hebrew called Armageddon. Har is a Hebrew word for mountain, the mountain of Megiddo. And I've stood there, I don't know, 15, 16 times. It is an incredible valley, the Valley of Jezreel. And to see, you can see it is very wide, it is very long, and you can see. And there is one opening in the great rift that starts in Central Asia, goes all down the way down to Africa, where an army could come in, and it's right there. 
It's the only place an army could come in. So all I'm saying to you is now, now we understand the geography of this. This will be, final battle will be fought in the Valley of Jezreel, which is where Armageddon is. Okay? I'm having a little problem tracking something here. Sure. Uh, you, and you're just honest. So the rest of these guys. They're having trouble with some of this, too. It's hard so, to keep so all this together. Okay, so you've described this as a great conflict between um, Satan and God. Mm-hmm. But the kings of the east, when they come in, they have, they're, not, That's right. they're not God's army. That's right. They're coming in to defeat the beast, mm-hmm. and in retaliation or to bring up troops, then the, the great dragon brings in an army to fight. I'm presuming to fight the kings of the east. So where does this? Where does where's God's army? In all well, that? <laughs> uh, it, it's Revelation 19. That's Revelation 19. But. You, you're asking a great question. What, what the Bible's doing here is every now and then it does this. Usually, and you even saw that in, in, in some of the earlier chapters, and you certainly see that like in Daniel and so on. You, you see it recorded at a human level. It's kings fighting. And what do kings fight? What, today, what do nations fight over? Power, wealth, economic reasons, and territory they want to gain. That's not going to be any different here. All the Bible's doing in this section is it's lifting the veil and helping us to understand that these evil kings are being motivated by the deceptive scheming of the false trinity and to remind us that ultimately this battle is between Satan, who is energizing this, and the Son of God. And Jim's question, where's the army of God? Well, in these last days, and you and I are going to be a part of that, if you believe in the rapture of the church, you and I are going to be a part of that, and we're going to be starting to gather, and Jesus is going to say, let's start to get your things together. We're about to go back to earth. Because Revelation 19, it tells us, the king returns, but with him are all the saints. I remember my son and I, uh, this, he was young, younger then, but we were just studying Revelation, a little Bible study, and we got to Revelation 19. If you read that, it says, and the king returned and all the saints on their horses. And Jonathan's question was, Dad, you told me there aren't any animals in heaven. <laughs> and I, for the first time, I didn't know how to respond. I said, I'll get back to you on this. <laughs> No, we'll, we'll talk about that later. So is there a conflict then between the kings of the east and the dragon and his armies? Do they clash? No, not really. Uh, they just gather. They, they gather. It is what, what verse 13 and 14 is telling us is it is Satan. It's the false trinity, but it's Satan, dragon, who is energizing and motivating these armies to move. And in this specific case, because as Daniel 11 tells us, and we're going to read a little more of it later on in chapter 19, powers from the north are going to come down, powers from the south are going to come down, powers from the east are going to come down, and and Antichrist, who is from the west, in our geography, Europe, is already going to be there because that's where he sets up the center of the kingdom. So as his entire world empire is disintegrating and unraveling, all of the different powers are coming to make war on him. What this is telling us is what is really in back of all of this is the satanically energized deception, which is ultimately leading to the war against God. And, and that's when Jesus, and that's how Revelation 19 depicts it, Jesus returns 
and he heads right up to the Valley of Jezreel to defeat these armies. And the Lamb of God is victorious, as the text will tell us. That's a, it's great imagery. Uh, and it's, I mean, I always, I said that a little, right? I, I'm always just, I'm, after, I'm confounded. How could Satan think he could win? But it's, it's like you have to go back and ask a question. That's, that the Bible doesn't tell us when this happened. But when he organized the rebellion against God, how did he think he could win? How do you think you could organize a successful rebellion against the Creator and sovereign, omnipotent Lord of the universe? How, you know, it's like, duh. But it's a little bit like humans saying, I don't care what God says. I am going to live my life the way I want to live it. And if I want to self-destruct, that's my business. I don't care about him. I don't care what he says. So maybe you get a little sense. A rebellion is as irrational as it seems to be, and it is irrational, is motivated by the fundamental question, who has the right to rule? Is it God in your life, or is it me? Or is it I, to be grammatically correct? Just like Satan. Who has the right to rule this universe, God or Satan? To me, that's a self-evident answer, but not to Satan. Why did Satan tempt Jesus? Did he think he could be successful? Yeah. I can convince Jesus that he doesn't have to go to the cross. And when that occurs, I've won. It's ludicrous, but... Right. Yeah. Why are the armies from the east going against the beast? Well, it, 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 it gets back to the what the fifth bowl judgment does and what I wrote up here. The empire, the cola, the, what Antichrist has put together is unraveling. And so, I mean, they're just, they're making war on Antichrist. I mean, that's how we would put it based on this, but I mean, you know, there's a lot. Well, yeah, I mean, they just... Everything, you know, and I, the, the details of this, I don't know if I can even be specific. But whatever the Antichrist and the Beast has been promising, whatever the nature of this worldwide empire and coalition, and everything, it's just unraveling, Woody. And so those who then were a part of that are saying, this no longer benefits me. I, I am going to take things into my own hands and topple him. And so, I mean, that's really what's going on at, at the human level, at eternal level, it's ultimately understood, and that's what we're where we are where where we're headed in the final battle between God, between the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and Satan. Okay? Yes. John. I had the impression that the worldwide empire of the beast that he had consolidated and worship of the beast was worldwide. It's right. It was. And how does that um when you're talking about kings from the east and from other areas that apparently have people under their control, maybe they're right. all worshiping the beast, but but the beast is not ruling the entire earth. It, yeah, I mean, I, I see a, a, a dilemma there. Well, um, he, I'm not sure all that you mean by, by right. he is he is ruling the whole world in a, in a sense because of, of what he is able to knit together in those first three and a half years. We're going to read a little more about it as we get into chapter 17, this 
this beast and the, the seven heads and the ten kingdoms. I mean, he puts together, this is the best I can do, John, to explain this. He puts together a coalition. And now, this isn't a great analogy, but it's a little bit like the European Union right now. It's a coalition of 28 nations. They're not integrated together politically, but they're integrated together economically and to a degree financially, okay? Now, I don't know how much you follow it. That's beginning to unravel. The European Union is beginning to unravel. The refugee crisis is creating that. What Vladimir Putin is doing is creating it. The economic issues, the euro isn't working very well. I mean, all of this thing is beginning to unravel. So uh, just think of that analogy and apply it to this. This, this massive worldwide coalition, it's, it, 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 it's like a confederacy or a coalition is the best way to think about it. You know, if you want to use it. China still China, but it's a part of this where they're submitting to the beast. But when it's no longer worthwhile to submit to the beast, and his, as, ver, as the fifth bowl tells us, the, his, his effectiveness as ruling is unraveling. When the effectiveness of rulers put the coalition together is unraveling, what do the coalition members do? They seek their own self-interest, which means we're no longer under the authority of the beast. And it, it's going to be so massive that all the major powers of the East, excuse me, all the major powers of the world head into the Jezreel Valley to fight this final battle. But they're uniting together to fight God from that standpoint. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and, that's, and that's, that's how the Bible is putting this. Now, I, I can't say that every single individual, every single member of the army, they're all saying we're fighting God. I'm not sure that we can conclude that. But the Bible is saying that's ultimately. Now, eventually they will see this. Because in Revelation 19 tells us body language and closing of books means it's time to quit. So it's going to make very clear to them that they're fighting Jesus. But that's, we'll get to that in chapter 19. So whew, we almost got it done. We have one more bold judgment. But what I wanted to do today, I think we accomplished, at least I hope we did. I wanted to review everything, get the big picture one more time, and see how what we're studying fits into the big picture. Because we're almost at the end. So next week, I, want, I don't know if I can do both of them, but chapter 17 is about the unraveling of religious Babylon. Chapter 18 is the unraveling of political and commercial Babylon. Things are beginning to fall apart. And it's all coming together, of course, then in that final campaign of Armageddon, which is then in chapter 19, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, is the return of Jesus. And then that's it. So, okay? okay? This is good. If you guys are really, if you really understand this, this is wonderful. So I'm assuming, with all the questions, I'm assuming you're getting a level of understanding, and that's wonderful. Lord, we're thankful for your faithfulness to each and every one of us. We're thankful that you are the Lord of history. We're thankful that you are the sovereign Lord of this universe. And we're thankful that the rebellion is not going to succeed. The triumph of evil is not going to succeed. And despite everything that we're studying as Satan organizes and throws everything he can at you, he is not going to succeed. Lord, that's a, the, the, the scriptures use the term, we are overcomers. It's one of the labels that's given to believers. We overcome evil. We overcome Satan. And that means we're on the winning side. And that, there's great comfort in that because we live in a world that 
that the old order of things is beginning to unravel. What was put together after World War II is beginning to come apart. That's unsettling. That's, uh, that's frightening. And it's just a little bit of an indication of what it's going to be like when these last days are upon, uh, upon the planet Earth. Things are, that seem to be together are going to be coming unglued and unraveling. And that is just further sign that the Lord Jesus is coming back. So in our era, we're not, I'm not in any way going to argue that we're in these end days. We're not, I don't think. But we do know one thing. We're on the winning side that the Lord Jesus is going to triumph and we're a part of that coming kingdom. Give us a good rest of this day. Help us to represent you well in all we do and say in Christ's name. See you next week.